We've had a couple of episodes in the past here on iLaft that dealt with making movies and the kind of preparation that goes into staging the scenes that come to the screen in spectacular ways. Everything is briefed, locations are meticulously scouted, and there's an out in case of a miscue. But what happens when an obstacle that wasn't there on one take appears on the next? It's a potentially deadly scenario of crossed wires. On this episode of I Laughed, I learned about flying from that. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 64 of Flying Magazine's I Learned About Flying From That podcast, brought to you by Avemco Insurance. I'm Rob Ryder, and today's guest is movie pilot Corky Fornoff. He might be best known for flying a BD-5 microjet through a hangar in the 1983 James Bond movie Octopussy. Today, Corky will share an incredible story of flying for a Disney movie in Hawaii and hitting a power line that wasn't there during previous takes. How he survived is a miracle. Corky will tell us all the details after this message from Avemco. Ask your flight school or FBO if their insurance covers you when you rent their plane. The answer is almost certainly no. Even if they do, you'll probably still be on the hook for a big deductible. But for as low as $95 a year, an Avemco Insurance Company renter's policy will protect you with no deductible, ever. Visit avemco.com flying or call 800-338-8705 and you'll be covered the next time you fly. Now, I learned about flying from that. Today on I Laughed, I welcome a longtime friend who has, has kind of a record, if you will, at Oshkosh, having flown six different types of airplanes at Oshkosh over the years, both solo and with his dad, and I think he even eclipsed Bob Hoover in the number of different airplanes he flew. Welcome, Corky Fornoff, to ILAFT. Congratulations oh. on the record. Well, thank you, Rob. I sure appreciate it, and I enjoy your program. Well, I'm glad you do. The reason you're on here today is to talk about a lot of different things with respect, not only to just flying, but planning. But you had to do some serious planning because you've done that for the movies for years. As a matter of fact, I think more people have seen you fly in one particular scene than any other in the history of movie making, right? You're correct. Tell me about that. That was the flying through the hangar in the movie Octopussy. And, you know, the Bond people keep exact records. And that movie has been seen by more people than twice the people on Earth. Oh, my goodness. I, w it, I wasn't even close to being. I was thought I was doing a superlative, and, and it's even greater than that. Well, you know, they have all of these Bond festivals all around the world. And then every year, you know, most of the streaming services have these Bond shows for weeks. Well, here we are on I Laughed, and... We're going to talk about another movie situation that you were in. But before that, I know you've flown with your dad, but take me back to when you were a kid and your first exposure to aviation. How, how did it get into your heart and mind and body and soul? 
Well, I was born in uh, 1945. In the day I was born, my father was assigned his first Corsair. He was a Navy a fighter pilot. Wow. And on the side of it, right in front of the windshield and behind the power section, was written Corky in big red letters and kind of a Coca-Cola crescent shape, you know, in, in mm -hmm. Coca-Cola font. And below that was a Japanese symbol. Now, we never knew what it meant. My father never knew, but he liked the name, so when he saw me, he called me Corky. The aircraft already had Corky on it, and you didn't, and that was how you got your name? Right. It came back from the Pacific Theater. Now, the kicker to this, Rob, was 30 years later, I'm doing a series of commercials for Toshiba. And that was the first time I flew through a hangar. But as we negotiated the contract and uh, got it all set up and signed the contract, when we finished signing that, the, uh, one of the executives from Toshiba slid another piece of paper over to me. And he said, now, Corky, we will pay you as much money to use your name as we're paying you to do the commercial. Well, Rob, I grabbed that paper and signed it quick. <laughs> I mean, because it was a nice chunk of money. He could have called me anything he wanted. So I slid the paper back to him, and I said, why? And he said, well, there's a culture in Japan, and when you reach the level of Corky, you're a favored son of the gods and not to be compromised. Now, that's when a light bulb went off in my head, and I figured, and my dad had passed by then, I figured that the Japanese fighter pilots, a lot of them were trained here in the U.S., you know, went to college and understood English besides Japanese. And in a, if the Japanese fighter pilot got into a fighter pilot with the Corsair with Corky on it and that Japanese symbol, he might figure, maybe I don't want to mess with this. And, uh, you know, all you need is a break in the dogfight. And uh, that's how I think that name became on that airplane with that symbol. I had no idea. Yeah, well, that's, Corky, that's pretty. That's an exceptional story. You know, well, like I said, that's how I found out when I did that commercial and they paid to use my name. Point, you were a well-established pilot in the air show business and the movie business as oh, yeah. well. Take me back to how, uh, did your dad teach you to fly? Was that something that went on? Well, he, like I said, he was a fighter pilot and he, we were based in New Orleans. He was selling automobiles in. And um, I used to go out to the airport. I started bugging him to take me to the Navy base when I was about three or four years old. And he was good friends with the tower chief. And so I'd go and sit in the tower with the tower chief. And he gave me a pad of paper one day. And he said, now write the numbers down of the airplanes. They had Stearmans and Grumman Ducks and Hellcats and Corsairs. He said, write the number down as it goes out to take off. And when it comes back, scratch that number off. Well, I didn't know how to write. He told me, just draw the number. That's how I learned to draw numbers and letters oh my in goodness. the tower. And it was then bit supremely, I guess, for Oh, you. It, it really had me. In fact, I had an epiphany. I can remember standing in tall grass in my shorts, probably three or four years old, and I heard this wonderful sound. And it was two Corsairs up above the clouds in a tail chase. And all of a sudden, they dive lower and lower and lower, and they came right over next to our house. And I remember feeling the blast, you know, from the uh, wake of the airplanes. Wow. And, and I remember looking at, I mean, this is as clear as day, I can recall this, and saying, I'm going to be a pilot. Did you solo when you were 16? 
no, my father wouldn't let me take flying lessons until <laughs> I finished college. He said, because if I did, I'd never finish college. And he was right. Oh, boy. You know, I went for three years. And um, uh, now here I am at, at 10 years old. I started riding in the back of Hoover's 51 to a lot of shows and cleaning Hoover's airplane and my dad's. They were real close friends. Wow. And so you got to hang with a Hoove. I was, I, I was raised with notables and didn't know who they were. My first air show um, I did because of Hoover and my dad. And it was a, a charity show to the astronauts. And the astronauts invited the performers. Now, I knew most of them because we would see them from time to time, and some of them came to visit. Well, the two that invited me and acted as your plane captains, and this was at Clear Lake, Texas, next to Houston, mm -hmm. were Neil Armstrong and Pete Conrad. They were the ones that shouldered me up to go fly the show. How that, awesome that, is that? That was my first air show. Your lessons, did you train in, uh, in Cessnas or, or what? No, I started, I finally kept bugging my dad because I'm going to all these air shows and meeting all these people and helping Dick Schramm as his instructor with his comeback. Oh, boy. And holding the, holding the poles, you know, for the inverted ribbon pickups and stuff like that. Well, I convinced my dad to let me take flying lessons. And we had a SNJ T6 sitting next to the hangar that had been there for a couple of years. He bought it for $500, and it just sat next to the hangar. What year was this? Oh, God, this would have been 65 or so, 66. Okay. All right. And um, now I figured, my dad told me he would never give me anything but opportunity. He said the way he was going to die was spend his last quarter before he took his last breath. <laughs> so he said, if you want to fly, you know, I'm not going to set up an account where you just go rent a Cessna. Take that SNJ, and if you rebuild it, you can use it to fly. And so I rebuilt it and learned to fly in the uh, SNJ T6. Corky, take me forward now to your I Laughed incident. What happened? When was it? What happened? Okay, this was in the early 90s, and I'm doing a theme park ride for Disney Studios, and it's for ILM was doing it, Industrial Light and Magic. And it was going in a theme park in Japan. And what they wanted me to do was to come up with an airplane and a camera system that would simulate a small unit coming out, a small aircraft coming out of a mothership. And it goes down and runs through all these canyons and valleys. And they want to make it exciting. So they wanted me to go from side to side in the canyons and up and down over these rocks, low altitude in the canyons. And it was for full motion theater. And it was a neat theater, and these things were just coming out, where the seat would raise up to show positive G and sink down, or sink down to show positive G and pop up to show negative G, you know, things of that nature. So this area in Hawaii gave all of these little rocks that come out from the side of canyon walls, and they look like saddles, you know. So we'd run down and go from wall to wall of the canyon and hop a couple of these and get down over the little rivers and fly out to the ocean. And then when you get to the ocean, you'd pull up straight vertically to go to blue. And the reason you go to blue is that makes your cuts. You can always end a cut going to blue, you know, the blue sky. Sure. And pick it up with the next one, starting out of blue sky. So 
we had shot most of the footage uh, at Nepali Coast, and now the last series. Nepali Coast is where? On the uh, west coast of uh, um, Kauai in the Hawaiian okay. Islands. It's and beautiful. in Kauai, Kauai, you said, it's the, gar- the Garden Isle. Oh, right, the Garden Island. What kind of airplane were you flying, Corky? I used a Cessna 402, and I had an engineering company, an aerospace company, and everybody in Van Nuys ends up working for like Lockheed and those kind of people. So these were very professional people. And I had them build a camera box, and the camera we were using um, was one that kind of, from what most people see, it's a camera that looks like it's laying sideways because the mouse ears lay flat. They aren't sticking up. You know, and it's this gotcha. division. And the, it's mouse vis- be- the mouse ears being the film magazine. Oh, correct. And it's, it was a Vis Division camera. And Vis Division is a wide frame. In other words, it sees 180 degrees, just like your vision. Wow. So that going through trees and down rivers and in these alleyways, the screen shows it. You see, in real, just like real life, objects in your periphery passing. And as a result, the sense of motion is is very, oh, very immersive. Right. So this camera had two unique features. One of them was a speed aperture control, which allowed the director, because he did everything on his computer in the back of the airplane, to change the lighting to fit the purpose and also to change the frame speed. As we would do these things, he would tell me, Corky, roll slow. So not only flying from side to side in the canyon, which has its own tricks, and I mean, you're going close. By the time I rolled out from one side, I was within 15 or 20 feet of the canyon wall. And um, so you had to work all of these parameters into his direction. And this camera just captured it all. It was unbelievable. Now, this last run I had discovered was from the top of the old volcano on Kauai. And it was about a 10-mile run to Princeville, which is on the north end of the island, a big resort area. It is also known as Hippie Land. This is where they grow all the marijuana in Kauai, is up in this area. And um, <laughs> now let me tell you, because see, all that. Forgive me, but I'm thinking mid-90s. And uh, let me tell you, you go to, I'll bet you, if you go to Princeville today, it is Haight-Ashbury, downtown. But but I can imagine what the hippies must have thought when they saw an airplane coming into their territory. You uh-huh. were a narc. Oh, that's it. That's what they thought. Because here I am in this airplane, twin-engine airplane, with a big black box under the nose, <laughs> making all of these turns and flying low. So, you know, I, now I went through all of these areas in the helicopter. I talked with all the pilots in the area. I talked with the FAA. They failed to tell me that this group had taken down a DEA helicopter about 10 years prior. Okay, because I check with everybody. Safety is paramount, you know. And I just want to make sure if, if Corky's safe in the cockpit, the guys in the back are going to be safe. <laughs> okay. You know, so we make this run. And uh, like I said, there's lots of little tricks to flying canyons. And... um I had an instant vertical speed, and I would fly around the rim of these canyons to see where the downdrafts and updrafts are. Now, the instant vertical speed is your VSI, but it read very, very rapidly, oh, is rapidly, what you're telling me. Rapidly, And, you know, 
canyon flying is kind of like riptides. Even though you got a wind blowing from offshore coming up out of the canyon, you think every wall of that canyon has an updraft. And that's not true because some of them have downdrafts. You know, and that just depends on how the canyon is built and where the rocks are. And, you know, air flowing around rocks is going to cause a vacuum behind some of them. Wow. So, so I'd find this right spot to drop down in there because you're dropping, you know, the first drop out of the top of this volcano is about six, 700 feet, almost vertically, you know, down into the canyon. And this now, you don't roll inverted at that point. It's a pushover, so you're negative Correct. G on the airplane. Yeah, about a half negative G to drop down in there. And I'd usually make it a little easier by kind of a 45 degree and dropping off on the wing to get down in there. But you're going down there with the gear and the flaps down to start down. And then as you're going downhill, you're retracting the gear and the flaps. You're busy. And then you start your canyon runs because you're all downhill. Well... This last runs all from the top of the volcano to Princeville was just gorgeous. I mean, the flowers and, you know, everything's just beautiful. You can see this. You're, you've got ground rush and you're paying attention to the flowers. Oh, sure you, you are. You see it all. You see it all, man. <laughs> so toward the end of this run, there is there was a saddle. And I call them saddles. It's a lava formation. that at the top is maybe... 30, 40 feet wide at the base of it because it goes down to the canyon wall and then all the way down to the bottom of the canyon. You know, that might be at the base a quarter mile. You know, it's just kind of a pyramid thing. But at the end of these, it's usually a peak, about 60, 70 feet of lava. But in the center from the ridge to that peak is a saddle, nice little saddle. So in other I, words, you're talking a concave area through correct. which you can fit the airplane. Correct. I knew you'd have the right word. So as we come up on it, I'm down at the bottom of this in this canyon, and it's about 200 feet, 260 feet to this concave part of this saddle. And I go up there. You pull up about two G pull. You go up over it, half G push on the other side. As yeah. I come down the other side, I roll about 45 degrees, go back down to the bottom a couple hundred feet to where the river is. And fly it out. And that's and then you're done. No. Nope. And then you gotta pull up <laughs> go up the left side of the canyon till you see blue sky. Then you're done. A piece then, of cake. Then that's cut. Okay? All right. Well we so, did it well, we did it six times and the director says I still have film. Now, Kelby Broccoli, the man that started James Bond movies, told me, Corky, the cheapest thing on a movie set is film, so you shoot it all. The most expensive thing on a film set is exposed film, you know? Gotcha. So we had enough film in the camera for another run. So, hey, I love my job. This was fun flying down in these canyons and, you know, knew the area was safe. We come back down this canyon. We start at the top from the volcano. As we come down and I make my run, I'm coming up to the saddle. I pull from about 20 feet above the ground up over the saddle, when I push that half negative G's, all of a sudden in front of me were three two-inch cables, and they're swinging in the wind. That weren't there before? Weren't there before. And there's nothing I can do. If I tried to push to go under them, I would have hit the ground. And if there was no way to put too much G on it, 
you know, how to rip the wings apart to go over them. So I tried to place the nose right between the top wire and the second wire. Now, when we went through those wires, there was a tremendous tug on the airplane. I mean, I was doing probably 150 knots at that time, and it took me down to like 120 or so. And it was like he was stretching a rubber band almost, you know. It was kind of a slow deceleration, and then all hell broke loose. I mean, there was fire, there was sparks, there was, you know, just crap everywhere. All of a sudden, my left ankle hurt like hell. And we come out the other side. Now, In other the, words, you got through this thing without tearing the airplane apart. It didn't rip the tail I mean, off, uh, it didn't rip the wings uh, off, it didn't rip it, the motors off. Well, it did a lot of damage, but, uh, you know, we were still a flying but airplane. But it was still flying. Right. Now, the flashes, the big flash and fireball, put spots in my eyes, you know, like a flash camera. Your vision then was impaired, impaired because of the flash. Yeah. I was looking out. I could still see very well out of my periphery, so you turn your head. I checked the instrument panel. All the instruments were perfect, all in the green. Nothing was wrong. You know, it was smooth, running real smooth. I reached down and looked at my ankle, and one of these cables had come through and wrapped itself around my ankle. And I followed it to where it came into the airplane, and it had caused a gash about three to four feet long and a good eight inches to a foot wide. And um, so we're going, we're going along. Now, I fly the airplane, fly the airplane, first thing. Second thing is, you know, Trade the airspeed for altitude. Altitude's your friend in any emergency. That's the first thing I was taught to do, unless you're on fire. You know, get altitude. Yeah. That's your friend. That gives you time. Now, we're going along. The owner was with me. He was another set of eyes. I look in the back. The director and the his assistant are both there. They're, of course, well-secured. And they just give me kind of the thumbs up, and the director went back to work on his computer. He had no clue. Oh, no, he knew something happened. He just, it was in my hands. He had no control over it. Now, the owner started to reach for the throttles. And he was, was in the right seat. In the right seat. And he started yelling, put it down, put it down, put it down. Well, as I saw his hands go toward the throttle, I gave him like a karate chop on his hands and told him to sit back and not touch a damn thing. You know, here again from my dad in Hoover, you have this kind of situation, you don't touch anything. You know what you have. I knew I had a flying airplane, you know. So we're going along. My vision's slowly coming back, and um, I'm looking the airplane over. I see the gash down by the rotor pedals. I look out on the wingtip, and there's an unbelievable dent right where I know a bulkhead is in the tip tank, and it's crushed in. I look on the right side, and there's a hell of a dent right by those rudder pedals, so deep it was about a quarter of an inch from the right side rudder pedals. But it didn't break the skin, it just crushed it. Now, I'm looking and I can see something flickering on each engine, but I don't have time to worry about it because everything's smooth. We come along, now we're driving down the canyon, I'm trying to get the altitude I can, I'm not going to touch anything. I know what I have, you know, you ascertain the situation. I knew I had a... A flying airplane. Wasn't going to add power, wasn't going to touch or change anything. I see these big towers, big electrical towers that go to Princeville from the high ridge. 
they cross right over this farmland and go into Princeville. Well, I'm looking at it and figuring I'm milking it a little bit as I can because I don't have any real power. But these are not the cables that you that had no, not been no. there before. This is those you knew. These, these cables ahead of you, you knew about. I knew about. The old cables had been laying in the grass for years and years when they tore waiting, them down. Waiting for somebody. Yeah. So we're going along, and I see this guy on a tractor, and he's waving at us and pointing at us. And I figured he's just waving at the airplane, you know. Well, all of a sudden, we get a tremendous second tug. And we were dragging about 100 foot, 150 foot of cable that was stuck to our airplane. And it went through those wires and yanked it out of the airplane. So we had a second strike. My gosh. And it ripped it out the airplane. Thank goodness it left a piece of cable, which I kept as a souvenir. <laughs> now, now, they, now the owner... Is he's saying, land at Princeville, land at Princeville. I said, don't say anything, just sit back and shut up. And he says, land at Princeville. I said, we're not going to land at Princeville. Princeville, while it's long enough to land a normal Cessna 402, has no support gear and no emergency equipment. It's 3,000 feet long, and we're going to make a no-flap landing. We aren't moving anything. So... He says, well, just fly straight back over the island. I said, no, we're going to fly the coast because I know the beach. I mean, I'd been filming on this island many times. And if I had to put it down, if I had an emergency, I wanted a beach or a shallow water to put it yep. in. Sure. See? So. <laughs> you finally make it back to what airport? To Lahui, the big airport there on the island. I called the tower at Lahui. And I said, guys, I said, I've got a problem. I said, I've flown through some power lines. I said, we already got a report um, that you were dragging something and flew through power lines. That's when I realized we were dragging that wire. So he says, um, do you want to declare an emergency? I said, no, I don't want to declare an emergency. I said, um, I'm going to make a no-flap landing. I want a long runway. And I said, I'll make a carrier-style approach, you know, just a continuing turn from downwind to final. And um, he said, are you sure you don't want to declare an emergency? I said, no. I said, this is a one-time deal. We are going to land. If the gear doesn't come down, you can make it an emergency. So now we line up to land, and the owner is saying, we're too fast. We're too fast. I said, don't worry. Don't touch anything. He says, let's go through the checklist. I said, forget the checklist. This is a one-time deal. We got a safe airplane under us. I reached down, put the gear down. They came down, thank goodness. Three in the green. Three in the green. Now, he's saying, you know, he wanted to come up with the power again. I hit his hand again. I said, don't touch anything. We come in and land. And I, what I did to land and lose the speed was I skidded it a little bit, left and right, and then slipped it, the final part, to lose the speed. That worked out great. There was a high-speed turnoff that went right to the ramp. I took that. We went into our ramp. When I, did you cut the power? Um, I left the, the I, I, after I landed, I slowly pulled the power back because I had enough speed to roll all the way in. When I shut the engines down, my heart sank. Rob, I looked out, and both props were hanging loose in the hub. All six prop blades. 
the uh, wire strike snapped all six snap rings in the hubs. And that's, you know, if we had touched anything, we'd have thrown a blade. You know, if we had tried to change the pitch of power, it'd have thrown a blade, which probably would have taken the engine and the wing off. Very likely. So that's the reason I didn't touch anything. I knew I had a flying airplane. Now, we get out of the airplane, and I'm going over it. The front wire, the high wire, came over the windshield, you know, came up the cowl. I saw that one. And it seemed like milliseconds. I watched it come up, go over the windscreen. It took the ram's horn antenna and the rudder cap, you know, off the vertical in the rudder. And um, I'm looking around. There's scrape marks and fire marks everywhere on the airplane. And that big dent in the left tip tank and uh, beat up under the wings, not dented, but you could see all of where the fire was, you know, from the, you know, the broken wires. Now, I go to the hole in the side and I reached in and grabbed the rudder pedals. I mean, it was a big hole. Goodness. The thing that saved our life, I am convinced, because I go to this big box now. This camera's 36 inches wide. Weighs 42 pounds, you know, so you can imagine the box that's under the nose. When I saw the engineers build that box, I thought they had overbuilt it. They had used uh, about three-quarter inch wide aluminum, shaped it like an airfoil, you know, to, to hold this box onto the bottom of the airplane. So there was about a three-inch gap. And these things were like cable cutters on a helicopter. And oh, yeah. That second wire, thank God, because like I said, when the FAA guy got there, he said, uh, he asked the guy, he said, were you the co-pilot? And before he could answer, I said, Jesus was my co-pilot. Wow. You know, and you could see where that mounting cut the cable, that second cable. Now, the props cut the, the bottom one and probably part of the top one. But the props... Each prop had one blade bent 45 degrees forward, about a third to halfway down the blade. I mean, bent forward. I don't see how that would actually happen, but... I don't either. I don't either. But I'm telling you, that's what happened. The other two blades, the tips were bent slightly back, one of them more than the other. Both props were identical, the way they were bent. <clears throat> but, Rob, I'm telling you, the airplane was smooth... It didn't have any vibration. You know, it was absolutely smooth. That was a miracle. Tell you what we're going to do. We'll take a break, Corky. Come back and then discuss what you learned about flying from okay. that. And now Avemco, Avemco probably won't ever insure me, even though they have many times. <laughs> we'll be right back. Okay. There's only one aircraft insurance company that invites you to call them and actually discuss your situation with an aviation insurance specialist. That company is Avemco. What kind of flying do you do? What if you don't fly all winter? Why is it just as bad to have too much insurance as too little? Is there a penalty just for being an older pilot? Call 800-338-8705 or visit avemco.com slash flying. Either way, tell them you're an I learned about flying from that listener and you'll save an additional 5%. Now, back to I laughed. 
We're back with Corky Fornoff, who, along with a couple of guys from Disney and this owner of the airplane in this Cessna 402, survived a double line strike, wire strike, and landed safely, only to find out that the airplane probably should have crashed back in that canyon. Corky, what did you learn about flying from that? Well, the thing I, I learned, and, and that's one of the things, is the safety aspect of it. The FAA had me write an incident report. They called it an incident because nobody was hurt. Okay. And when the FAA guy told me that, I said, incident my ass. <laughs> I said, <laughs> so they, when they came over and looked at the airplane, they couldn't believe it. They said, this airplane should have crashed. Well, it goes back, Rob, and this is the thing, I think, you know, the safety aspects of it. I used my training. I was very glad to have several great instructors and mentors, Bob Hoover, my dad, Charlie Hammonds, Clay Lacey. You know, I learned from all of them. All you know, great and, names and, in aviation. Oh, and worked with all of them. Charlie Hilliard used to tell me and kid me all the time. He would say, Corky, you were born into the right gene pool. But I used my training, you know, the things of... I had a problem. I ascertained it. I treated airspeed for altitude to give me more time to, you know, to handle the situation. And I knew I had a flying airplane. Keep flying the airplane. I wasn't going to change anything. Uh, when I went back, I used safety procedures for the landing, you know, from the standpoint of no flaps. I didn't know what damage I have. I could have put the flaps down and had one come down and the other one stay up, you know, as bad as the airplane was beat up. So... It was going to be a no-flap landing, and the gear came down, and we, we made it back. It snapped all six of the snap rings. I mean, the FAA gave me a good report on that. They said that was the first time they had ever seen that, and they questioned. They said there was no vibration. I said, I'm telling you, there were no vibrations. It was absolutely smooth. What else did you learn about flying from that? Um, well, I'm never going anywhere where they grow marijuana again. You know, okay. <laughs> even even though I even though I do doing a movie in New Zealand, <laughs> sure, I know Great Barrier Island. But you know, it's it's I had great instructors, and I would like to impress upon every student because you go out and get an instructor, and a lot of young pilots get instructors' ratings so they can build time and go on to other jobs, and they're good instructors. Don't get me wrong, but what experience do they have? That's the thing. I would recommend and anybody before they get take their check ride that they go at least four or five hours with an instructor that has some long experience behind him. I hear that loud and clear. But because he's gonna tell you the little things that'll save your life. Did they ever find out the people who stretched those cables across? That's the final question I gotta ask you. Yes. What they did was, Rob. And when, once it happened, the FAA said, oh, well, that had to be the marijuana growers. They would steal electricity to run several pumps down from the river to water their plants. Even though there's a lot of rain in Kauai, they still would water the plants. So they took the old power lines when they broke them down many, many years ago. They'd been there over 100 years. They just, you know, they never cleaned it up. They just laid them down. Well, these people would go and steal them and reconnect it, and they'd put it on a pole, and they'd lay the pole down in the grass, in that tall grass, which would hide the wires. Then when they needed the electricity, they'd raise a pole like a telephone pole, you know, not that big, 
and the wires would be up out of the water and the, and the, you know, in the tall grass. So it's entirely possible they were not trying to knock you out of the sky. They uh, were just trying to run their operations. Well, yeah, either that or they, I mean, here again, as you said, here's a twin engine airplane with a <laughs> big black box on the nose that keeps flying down, going over our crops. It must be the DEA, <laughs> you know? Oh, my goodness. It makes, this, it seems to me that it makes flying through the the uh, the barn in Octopussy in the BD5J a cakewalk. Well, it, it does. So that, but uh, Rob, I've got you know fifty six years I've been doing this, and I've got a ton of stories. In fact, you know I've been writing a book, hoping find a publisher for it on all of these experiences because it's really about the people, places, and things. Aviation's the thread through the book, but there's so many interesting stories from around the world that. You know, making movies and air shows. Oh God, I've got some great air show stories. So, so have I. <laughs> yeah, I know you do. <laughs> oh my, yeah. Corky, this has been a great, great opportunity to talk with you at great length, more time than we've ever had at shows before. And I am so appreciative that you shared these lessons with us. Thank you for being on. I laughed. Well, I just want people, pilots, to be safe and and you know know what happens, but understand it. Don't just know it. Understand it. How Corky handled the emergency is a great example for all of us. His response in simply flying the airplane and not overreacting to the emergency was the key to saving his and his passengers' lives. Thanks, Corky, for sharing your story with all of us. Do you have an I Laughed story you'd like to tell? I'd like very much to hear it. Send me an email with a synopsis of your story and we'll consider it for an episode. My address is rob at flying.media. Rob at flying.media. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll subscribe and share it with your friends. I Laughed is available wherever you get your podcasts. We drop episodes every couple of weeks so you can hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. The I Laughed theme and commercial instrumental music for the podcast was written and performed by Rob Potorf. Julie Boatman is editor-in-chief of Flying Magazine, and Lisa DeFries is the executive producer of I Laughed. For Avemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927, I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That. <laughs>